Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day, Stephen. Welcome to another week on the show. Yeah, yeah. I got through the intro again with all that, that long title of yours. Well, you did. That's true. i got to ask for permission to abbreviate that one of these days. <laughs> well, you know, as I say to all of our staff, we love all our children equally. It would be hard for me to know which one we would abbreviate. Maybe we could rotate each week and highlight just only one each week. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I can still get it out in one breath, so I think we're going to keep it. Besides, we have to tip our cap to the new college in Kern. That's exactly right. Yes, absolutely. So, Mitch, I'm excited as are you today, we have a return guest, and that is Chris Halsor, and we're going to be talking about marijuana and many issues centered around marijuana, including uh, what to do now that it is uh, recreationally um, legal and that um, certainly in California, possession's been reduced to a misdemeanor, and uh, there are a host of issues, a number of issues to discuss centered around this topic, and I think we have Chris at the Dallas airport. Am I right, Chris? That's right, guys. You're in transit? I am in transit, and I am uh, headed to the Golden State uh, to talk more about legal marijuana. You know, you're going to Napa, I understand. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'll be in Napa tomorrow. I'm going to be doing a half-day presentation there for uh, law enforcement, just one of the entities that is going to have to adapt to this new law and the myriad of uh, policy issues that go along with it. And you'll be speaking about uh, a form of cultivation that won't involve grapes, but instead, instead another crop. <laughs> That's precisely right. Uh, it'll be uh, California's new cash crop. Well, Chris, you know, it's not just a new cash crop. You know, there's, there are estimates that say that in California it will take very little time before cannabis becomes the number one cash crop in the state of California that will... Uh, tally in the in the literally the billions with a B billions of dollars of revenue. So it's I'm sure there's a lot of interest in what you have to say. Yeah, I think so, Mitchell. Um, you know, uh, I hail from Colorado, uh, ground zero for legal marijuana, and in 2016 we did about 1.3 billion dollars in sales. Uh, that's servicing uh, a population of about five and a half million people. And, uh, of course, California has 38 million. So uh, you guys will quickly surpass that. And, well, Chris, before we kick around issues, sorry, Mitch, can, I just want to give you a chance to, to introduce yourself and your business to our listeners. Well, uh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, so I am a Colorado lawyer. Um, I am a prosecutor by background. And uh, I, it just so happened that uh, about 2009, I was there on the front lines when medical marijuana really took off. And I was witness to all the things that occurred in Colorado. And so I developed an expertise in it. And in 2014, I formed my own shop called Understanding Legal Marijuana. And I travel the country and teach and do a little bit of consulting on the side for states and local governments who are trying to figure out how to sort out this uh, uh, issue that has uh, lots of webs and spokes that come off of it. Well, that's great. So, so Chris, can you give us a bit of a preview? We don't want to steal your thunder of your program in Napa, but can you, you, can you highlight some of the things you'll be talking to law enforcement about uh, in the next few days? Well, yeah, Mitchell, I think 
it's it's a big paradigm shift for law enforcement. And, you know, understanding that California's had medical marijuana and, and a lot of decriminalization of drug offenses over the years, uh, nevertheless, it, it requires officers to look at things differently. Uh, just to give you guys an example now, uh, under Proposition 64, the ballot measure that has enabled recreational marijuana, uh, components of that law are already in in effect. So one of the most basic ones is that an individual is allowed to possess uh, an ounce of marijuana. And so they can have it on their person, in their possession, uh, in their car. And for law enforcement, uh, you know, for the better part, or well, for many decades, their probable cause was based on their nose. And so now we've got it where they're going to be challenged with uh, people can possess it, they can smell it, um, and I don't think that noses can discern amounts of marijuana. So uh, they're going to have to adjust and adapt. And, you know, Chris, uh, I, of course, um, you and I are both well-versed on impaired driving laws and the challenges that will be confronted and are continued to uh, exist related to impaired driving. Uh, impaired driving under the influence of marijuana is an area that requires special attention, wouldn't you agree, in terms of education? Absolutely. And in fact, it's probably one of the most imperative uh, ones. Um, you know, there, there are police officers that uh, are specially trained and, and well-versed in detecting drug-impaired drivers. Those are called drug recognition experts. Uh, but that constitutes a very, very small minority of the overall police population. And in response to, uh, you know, this shift where we are now going to, beginning in 2018, uh, have the ability of anybody, uh, 21 or older, regardless of where they're from, uh, they can go into a California dispensary and, and purchase their products and then arguably head out on the road. So, Chris, when we talked with you before, you 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 also helped us understand that you know in a typical DUI case involving alcohol we have standards that that I guess go back decades now that have been scientifically proven about how alcohol metabolizes in the body and the courts and and law enforcement have become have been able to rely on those standards what's happening with cannabis and marijuana what how would you prove up that similar type of a of an impairment. Well, I think that's the challenge right now, Mitchell. And uh, you know what has happened because alcohol has been the driving force in impaired driving detection. In in many ways, drug impaired driving uh, is based on the alcohol template. And there certainly has been research. There are clinical indicators across many different categories of drugs where police officers can detect it. But marijuana is going to be its own special category in this regard because, uh, you know, I teach extensively on this. And uh, the, the simple fact is, is that marijuana impairment is more difficult. It's more difficult to detect and it's more difficult to, to prove in court. Uh, part of that, I think, is because um, a lot of what you see with marijuana impairment is mental impairment. And I think just because of alcohol in so many years, people have an expectation that you're going to see somebody who looks like a drunk. And high people don't look like and act like drunks. We're dealing with a, a whole separate drug that interacts with the body differently and is going to present differently. You know, Chris, uh, you and I have actually presented at the same seminars on topics that are related to the investigation component of impaired driving cases, and I know that you've been involved in uh, a green lab, and we want you to talk about that. We'll probably reach it after our first break, but typically the standard field sobriety tests that are administered in an impaired driving investigation related to alcohol may not cross over uh, into impaired driving related to marijuana. Is that the spirit of what you're, you're sharing now? Yeah, that is. Um, you know, within an alcohol investigation, police officers typically will use a, a three-test uh, three battery. 
and one piece is to examine the eyes, and then the others are probably what people are more familiar with. Uh, to oversimplify it is that, you know, a person walks down a line, makes a turn and walks back, and another one is they'll stand and hold their leg up for a while. And as, as you guys discussed, these have been utilized for decades. They've been vetted by the courts, uh, have scientific validity. When it comes to marijuana, there are some other tools in the toolbox that more advanced trained officers have, uh, and those examine some other features. But uh, I think in doing what I've done the last two years, including the, the Green Lab, what we'll talk about, I think there may be a need to, to reach out and uh, examine scientifically if there are some better tools to uh, possibly detect impairment. Yeah, let's pick that up when we come back from our break. We'll talk about the investigative prong of impaired driving when it may involve uh, impaired impairment relative to marijuana and how law enforcement needs to be braced for these kind of cases. We're going to go out on a short break right now and hear a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Our guest today is Chris Halsor. When we return from this break, we will pick back up on our conversation about marijuana, the legalization of marijuana, Prop 47, Prop 46, and a number of other issues. Please don't go away. We will be right back after this break. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. 
Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we are talking about marijuana, and our guest today is Chris Halser. He is the owner-operator of Understanding Marijuana, LLC. He is a prosecutor, professor, and teacher. And Chris, before the break, we were about to get into, or we had been talking about the challenges that are imposed in impaired driving cases that may involve marijuana. And let's pick up or, or continue on that topic and focus on really the totality of the circumstances. Because after all, what law enforcement is doing when they investigate the case is they're judging whether the driver can safely operate a motor vehicle. Isn't that what it comes down to? Yeah, that's really what it is, uh, Stephen. And look, with regards to alcohol, uh, I, I think that legislatures all around the country, in part driven by the federal government, uh, you know, create these legal legal mechanisms with per se laws, uh, which basically say if you, if you're a certain blood alcohol level, you have violated the law, and, and they don't really contemplate uh, the true gist of proving that somebody is impaired. It's the mere fact that they had that much alcohol in their system on board at or around the time they drove—that's enough. Um, but. Uh, we're going to have a lot of challenges with marijuana in that regard. Uh, the the science on the toxicology piece is such that trying to really place a number uh, associated with, with that is problematic. And therefore, uh, the police officers on the road are really going to have the task of trying to prove this person is unsafe to drive a car. Yeah, you know, Chris, so in California, we have two code sections, 23152A and 23152B. And the B count is the .08 or greater, and that's the per se that you were referencing. But the A count, which relates to really whether or not the person was able to safely operate a motor vehicle and whether there were signs of impairment, does not rely on a per se count. And what I thought would be something you can expand upon is this idea of capturing a breath sample and the blood sample in an alcohol impairment case. It's dramatically different when you're talking about measuring marijuana and assigning some kind of per se limit to it. Can you speak a little bit to that issue and what you see coming? Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. And so, you know, I, again, I think uh, wanting to follow an alcohol formula, the, the way a lot of legislatures who have had to deal with legalized marijuana, either medical or recreational, is they want to assign a number to marijuana. And a lot of the origins are, of this are with my home state of Colorado. And five nanograms of Delta-9 THC has sort of become what people have been looking to uh, apply in these circumstances. Delta-9 is the active impairing ingredient in marijuana. Um, it's detectable in blood tests only. And so you have states like Oregon and Maine that now have recreational marijuana, but their statutes only allow urine samples. Uh, so that's an instance uh, of law enforcement being hampered from even detecting the biological marker. But even in the states that do allow blood tests where you can detect Delta-9, within the last couple of years, the scientific literature has come out and, and really called into question specifically 5 nanograms, um, uh, suggesting that it's both over-inclusive and under-inclusive, that there can be people under 5 who are impaired and people who are over 5 who aren't impaired. And so this is really going to challenge uh, people. And in defending a case like this, I think uh, the defense attorneys out there can bring on some witnesses that will really help establish that. So in my mind, it all comes back to the officer proving this person uh, is unsafe. So, Chris, before you move on to the officer part, which I think is a critical element, if I remember our discussion before, one of the examples you gave that, that helped me understand this was, for example, someone in a state where there's uh, legal me medical marijuana who's been on a long-term pain management regime using cannabis uh, could build up a tolerance, and although they could test in a blood test at a higher level than you discussed, they wouldn't actually be violating, they, they may not actually be violating an impaired test. Yeah, Mitchell, it's, 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 a, it's complicated. Um, uh, marijuana is, is considered lipophilic, and so what happens is, is it 
tends to seek out and store uh, in fat deposits. Um, now, now, you all have uh, people who say, well, it stays in your system for up to 30 days, and, and therefore, even if you tested me, it could have been from the marijuana I smoked last week. Um, that's true for one of the meta- metabolic markers, which is called carboxy. Um, but in a blood test, you can discern Delta-9, um, and one of the challenges that comes along with this uh, is, well, Delta-9 is a very ephemeral drug, so it doesn't stay in the system for very long. Uh, and trying to get a blood test quickly uh, becomes imperative uh, along the way. And then what do you do with the information? You know, Chris, the, the other thing I wanted to add, and it, it relates, I think, in many ways to what Mitch was getting at, and you reference mental and physical impairment. And when you look at those two components, uh, I always think of things like divided attention or what is commonly known as multitasking and all the demands placed on a driver. Do you think that some of the drug recognition experts and, and their protocol might need to include a little bit more emphasis on uh, focusing on, on those skill sets. Uh, yeah, Stephen, I think, I, I think, I don't think the protocols necessarily have to be altered or amended. I do think that the law enforcement officers have to kind of refocus uh, on that. And I think because so many are used to de- dealing with alcohol impairment, and alcohol manifests itself well physically. People have bloodshot, watery eyes, slurred speech, trouble walking, and that's what we associate with impairment. But when it comes to drug-impaired driving, and specifically marijuana-impaired driving, it's that mental piece. So I agree, focus and attention, listening to instructions. Uh, One of the features of marijuana impairment is loss of short-term memory. So when you give somebody a list of instructions on the roadside, they tend to forget stuff, um, and, and that's a function of the drug. I don't know, Chris. At my age, that test kind of worries. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, accounting for age as well, Mitchell. <laughs> uh, but, Stephen, you, you talked about, and I think it's a... It, uh, Chris, what you're doing many of the training programs on is that there might have been a tendency for the law enforcement at the curbside to uh, only go so far in the testing knowing that the breathalyzer and the other scientific evidence would just back them up and kind of complete the case. It doesn't sound like that is going to be available for uh, drug-related impairment and that the steps they take and what they document during the initial stop and why they stopped is going to be critical in making these cases? I think so. I mean, you know, in these cases, they're certainly capable of capturing the toxicology, but one of the things that I like to do in my training, guys, is, is put, it, put it bluntly that if the prosecutor were to stand up in an alcohol case and say, hey, Judge, jury, uh, the driver admitted to the police officer drinking 10 beers, and they had a blood alcohol of a .150. What would be the immediate inferences that people could draw from that? My hope would be, you know, 10 beers and a BAC like that, they can reasonably infer that they're drunk, and, and we're probably on our way to a conviction. However, if I sit there and say, well, the driver admitted to uh, smoking a joint, and when they took their blood, they had 19 nanograms of Delta-9 THC. Does anybody know anything from that? I think not. And so to buttress that evidence, you may have a toxicology result, but to make anybody understand it, you're probably going to have to have an expert witness, a toxicologist. And that just adds another complicated layer to all of this. And Chris, um, not that I want any bold predictions, but if you can perhaps provide a little bit of insight as to what you think is going to happen as far as per se, do you think we'll get to a point where we've got it? Uh, At the moment, moment, Stephen, I would say no. 
Um, yeah. I, I don't foresee a per se in California specifically. Um, I think the, the science is in flux, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Primarily, the federal prohibition against marijuana greatly limits the research that can be conducted on it. And uh, therefore, I think, uh, you know, people are going to start staying away from a number. Now, there are scientists and toxicologists out there who believe maybe there's some other metabolic marker out there. And that once we start tearing this plant apart and understanding it a little bit better, maybe there is something out there that will give us a, a reliable number that suggests impairment. So, Chris, tell us a little about, what, what did you call it, a green clinic that you're going to be putting green on? Green lab. Green lab, yes, that's what it was. Tell us a little about the green lab. So, uh, two years ago, I, I created a class uh, that I ran out of Colorado. It's called Col- Marijuana DUI Investigations. And the purpose of it was to get law enforcement officers uh, and prosecutors a little bit better at the investigation uh, of and prosecution of these cases. And so one of the features, the most unique feature of it, is the Green Lab. And what I do is I get members of the community to come in and volunteer uh, to dose on marijuana. And then the uh, Go back to that. You just get volunteers who want to come in and get high? Yep, that's exactly <laughs> it, Mitchell. I can, I, I guess we shouldn't even go there. I mean, I can just envision the people lining up for for this uh, volunteer opportunity. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's a unique form of community service. Um, but I in front of a room full of police officers. <laughs> well, it, it, it's an interesting conversation that we have with the volunteers, and and you might think that uh, people's first reaction is going to be, well, why would I want to help the police officers? And uh, it's been an interesting experiment. I, I run now about two dozen of these classes, and, and usually what comes out of it is both sides have a little bit better understanding of each other. Um, the police officers can look at people and say, hey, uh, cannabis users aren't necessarily all the stereotypes we thought they were. And on the other hand, the uh, cannabis users can take a look at it and say, hey, I'm, I'm a little more aware of the public safety issues associated with marijuana and driving. And so I think so, it's Chris, been very successful. So, Chris, set up the, uh, the protocol a little bit for us. I mean, there's, an, there's obviously a controlled environment, and I don't know what the ingestion methods are. Is it edibles, and are, they, are the uh, subjects also smoking, or what? How does it work? We, we typically try and uh, get a spectrum of products out there because that's, of course, what's available on the open market. Um, so seeing new things like edibles and concentrates, those are things that uh, we want the police officers to be exposed to. Um, you know, we, uh, we screen uh, our participants to uh, make sure that they don't have other things on board that might be obscuring what the officers are seeing. Um, And then I typically throw in a placebo, too, uh, to kind of see if they're tracking correctly, have a little bit of a control. So is is the idea... uh does it stem from what, what you know, you and I know, as wet labs, but you're crossing it over into marijuana? Absolutely. So one one of the staples of educating police officers on detecting alcohol-impaired drivers is a wet lab. And that is, uh, you know, getting some people to to have some drinks, um, and they can then uh, go from there and, uh, you know, test them out, try the maneuvers, go with the training they've had to do that. So it's the exact same concept, just using marijuana. And, and Chris, we do want you to talk about the business side of marijuana also, because I know that's an issue that you've confronted, uh, and the clash between state laws and federal laws, and really how we're going to brace for marijuana as a business. Can you uh, tease that issue a little bit before we come up on uh, on a break? Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. So um, with all of this, you have... Uh, you know, this, this burgeoning industry and 
for states to take a, a drug that's been illegal for 70 years and now they have to come up with regulatory structures uh, and they have all these business types they have to govern, there are going to be a ton of legal challenge and policy issues for both the people who are trying to get in the business uh, and then for the states and local governments who are trying to oversee and regulate it. And that's everything from environmental regulations to issues of, of banking and taxation, um, intellectual property, and the list goes on and on. And Chris, another issue directly connected to that is the scheduling and how marijuana is classified. Can you briefly talk about that? Where does it fall on a schedule, schedule one versus schedule two? And just introduce that briefly, would you? So the concept right here is, is that particular drugs in the United States belong to a federal scheduling system. And marijuana for a long time has been scheduled as uh, Schedule 1. And what that means is, is it has no known medical value. Uh, and obviously that's controversial in and of itself. But uh, it also means that it is the most restricted classification of drug out there. And so from the federal government's perspective, uh, it's a very dangerous drug, and uh, they enforce it in theory accordingly. And is there a movement to actually reclassify it as a Schedule Two? Yeah, there, there's a movement to reclassify it to a different drug schedule that would allow uh, more scientific studies to occur with it uh, and conduct some of the research that people desperately want. But for a lot of people in the marijuana industry, there's a downside to it. Um, and that is something, uh, you know, that we should talk about because uh, there are a lot of people... Uh, Marijuana let's proponents who wanted to going be out on a break. Let's, let's pick it up. We're going out on a break. Let's pick up that topic and shift into the business side of marijuana. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Our guest is Chris Halsor. We'll be right back after this short break and continue our discussion. Don't go away. <laughs> If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice 
Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, our guest today is Chris Halsor, and our topic is marijuana. And we're shifting the topic or the conversation to the business side of marijuana. And Chris, before the break, we were talking about this division between Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 and how marijuana is classified. Um, let's continue on the discussion about challenges that are faced uh, for those that are engaged in the, in the business of marijuana. Well, th- Stephen, uh, it, it's going to be big. There, there's going to be a lot of issues with it uh, going forward. So um, the scheduling is but one issue along the way. But it, with this new system, with, with California poised to have recreational marijuana and dispensaries opening up, uh, you know, at the beginning of 2018, there are businesses that are tooling up right now. And what they're going to face is a huge regulatory gauntlet um, of uh you know, rules, regulations covering a whole litany of, of topics. And so, when Chris, I know you're going to have to peel off here in a few minutes to catch your plane, but you know, what we're going to talk about in this segment is it, it, it affects employment law, it Im- affects uh, reporting taxes uh, for those who are licensed in an, have a business license in a given state, but they still have to report federal taxes. Uh, it it affects insurance. Uh, it's all of these traditional things that we think about in business that are a real challenge when you have this bifurcation between the federal and the state laws. Yeah, no question about it, Mitchell. Uh, just even take example banking. Um, because banking is, is federally regulated, uh, a, a lot of these businesses are, reg- are reduced to having all cash. Paying their employees, trying to pay their taxes, uh, doing everything with cash because they can't get a checking account. Um, that's but one uh, uh, of a few things. Furthermore, they can get no business deductions on their tax returns. Uh, the IRS will take their money, but they don't get the benefit that other business owners have. Um, yes, you, can't, you can't file a W-2 if you have regular employees. Right. Uh, you have a hard time uh, getting health insurance for them as a business. Uh, and uh, I've heard instances of you have a, a hard time getting even things such as life insurance because the life insurance companies are are treating uh, even medical marijuana use similar to smoking and putting high premiums or refusing premiums. Yeah, I think so. So it's trying to – a lot of people see the, the potential to make millions, um, but it's not for the faint of heart for those who want to get into this industry. Uh, furthermore, you have to couple that with, you know, the state of California is now coming up with three different bureaucratic entities that are going to have to oversee this, that they're trying to staff out. They're coming up with rules and regulations. And, you know, sorry, California being California, it has one of the strictest environmental regulations uh, around the country for all of this. It's all of these entities are going to have to comply with multiple laws affecting emissions, water, chemical discharge, and on and on. Yeah. Well, the, the, one of the things we've talked about and we deal with right here is that even on the growing side, the use of pesticides is highly regulated in California and, uh, then, and frequently tested before they're somewhere in the process before it comes into retail. For example, whether you say something's organic or not, whether it has certain pesticides. And all of that still needs to be developed for the oh. cannabis industry as well. Yeah, 100%. And so we're, we're sitting here in the middle of September, and I, 
think people are hoping to open their doors January 1st, um, and, and they're still waiting for the ink to dry on the final regulations before they can they can move to operate and try and get licensed, not only by the state, but then by their local government, who will have yeah, their own set of rules and regulations. Yeah, Chris, I'm tracking it here in the Central Coast, and we've got it going on here in a couple of towns, one specifically being Grover Beach, and uh, there are going to be numerous entities looking inside the tent, or they may already be in the tent, but it's it's really interesting to look at all the levels from a fiscal side, and when Mitch was referencing uh, things like, or whoever introduced payroll, I had it hadn't even dawned on me that... Uh, a business owner would really have to be almost operating on a cash-only uh, system. Yeah, and just even trying to get financing for it is going to be hugely problematic. Well, Chris, thank you very much. We know you've got to dash off and catch a plane. We don't want to miss you to miss your flight to Napa. Thank you for, for coming on board, and we're, we're going to have to bring you back as this rolls out further here in California and other states. Thanks for having me again, guys. Thanks, Chris. Safe travels. Bye-bye. So, Stephen, you know, Chris raises these issues. Let's just talk about some of the other business issues that, that we already know are happening. The one you brought up is absolutely the number one concern that, that I've heard from those who are in the industry and considering to being in the industry, which is, at the moment, it's a cash business. But you're talking about... Uh, individuals who literally have had to have armed, guarded warehouses in order to put the cash for what is legal in California, which is medical marijuana dispensaries. And yet they're not allowed to put the money into a federally chartered institution, a bank or a savings and loan, because it's been determined that, that that may fall under the money laundering for criminal enterprise, and the banks don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, you know, Mitch, we've talked about it once before, and I'm thinking about the phrase from farm to table. You know, we think of um, vegetables and, and edible crops. Um, in a way, the same thing is, is raised with marijuana industry. There's going to be oversight from the crop and the growing segment on through the actual sales and infrastructure, uh, you know, at a dispensary. And the layers of oversight and scrutiny are, are daunting and incredible. Yeah, so as we talked about on the wholesale side or on the grower side, just the issues we know are going to have to be addressed. Number one, banking. So uh, some place to put the cash in a legal manner. Uh, number two, payroll and taxes. Because you can pay cash to your employees, but you're violating the federal labor laws by doing that. And you're not allowed to file W-2s because, well, it's an illegal enterprise in the, in the eyes of the federal government. You can pay income tax and corporate taxes because there's a, a special clause that allows that to be done. But as Chris pointed out, there are severe limitations, such as you're not allowed to take traditional business deductions, and therefore that makes it very difficult to, to, to really calculate and file accurate taxes. Yeah, and you know, you're mentioned in reference to it being a pure cash business and the need for having armed guards, as you referenced, obviously raises a criminal side to this and a safety component too, Mitch. Well, it's not, and it, it, it's every aspect of it, Stephen. It's it's knowing that these dispensaries have large amounts of cash on hand because they, they you know need to clear it out every day. But even in the course of a day, a busy dispensary is going to do a, a large amount of cash business. Uh, the transactions of going to buy equipment and supplies, uh, cash transactions, and then ultimately the 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 revenue and profits have to be stored somewhere. So it's, it's, it's a very disjointed, and I've heard uh, those in law enforcement say uh, uh, very alarming to them because it just creates a target for criminal activity, not of the dispensaries, but of those who might be preying on the dispensaries. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, the dynamic could change if there is going to be or if, if there are regulations 
government regulations in place that actually create a monitoring system and, and perhaps someday open up the possibility of banking traditionally. And, of course, that's the clash between federal and state laws. Yeah, and let's talk a little more about the regulations that have to, have to come into place here in California. And, and Chris touched on a couple of them. But once you shift from the wholesale to the retail, there's a number of things that have yet to be finalized. There are going to be labeling laws that require the the retail sale product to have percentages of CBD and THC. They're going to have to be labeling that talks about whether it's organic, about whether it's been tested for to be pesticide-free. I'm told by one of the scientists I know that have worked some in the labs on this issue that there are certain pesticides that are perfectly okay if the product is going to be converted to oil and then and put into an edible. No danger whatsoever. On the other hand, the very same pesticide, if it's put into a product that's going to be burned and smoked, actually converts chemically to something closer to almost cyanide. And that none of that regulatory structure is in place yet for even the investigators who are going to go out and supposedly certify the product, there are no protocols for them to follow that allow them to give the information to the grower or the seller so that they know what they're supposed to put on the label so that the consumer knows what they're buying. There you go. So it's not unlike a label that you would see on a traditional food item. I anticipate it's going to be exactly that. There'll be a regulated format. Uh, there's going to be, you mentioned farm to table, the, the, a similar tracking is expected that would allow uh, the product to be tracked from the grower through production, packaging, and into retail. And that's important in case there's something such as a tainted product that we've we've seen in the past year, my goodness, we had the the huge recall of wasn't it spinach here in California That's just right. a year and a half ago, and mm-hmm. they were able to take the tainted product and track it all the way back to the exact grower in the exact field to then investigate and find out what was the source of the problem. They're going to need to do the exact same thing with the whole cannabis production line as well. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can recall seeing that or uh, learning about that with the E. coli breakout, and there was mechanisms in place where they could actually trace origin. So that's fascinating, Mitch, to think that that same concern uh, applies with the with the grow and transportation of marijuana. And there's no num- steps along the way in which other additives, for example, in some cases the the cannabis oil is mixed in with other oils or other uh, products in order to make it uh, dispensable in whatever the final use is. And that those, those also are going to need to be tested and confirmed to be toxin-free. Uh, so there's going to be a huge laboratory business that's going to come up in this industry that is yet to be discussed. Who's going to certify? Is the state, the county, the municipality? All of those things are going to happen. And as Chris said, the laws changed January 1, and much of this is still up in the air. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, all this is making me think of the great old saying, careful what you wish for. <laughs> I think you're exactly right, Stephen. There's a lot of work to be done, both from the uh, business side of it, those who want to be in the business, uh, the lawyers, the accountants are going to have to get involved. And then there's still plenty of work to be done in Sacramento to make sure that the consumer protection laws are in place to make sure that the same type of safety is there that we've learned to expect for food and for medicine as well. Yes, yes. Great show, Mitch. Well, thanks, Stephen. We're going to have to come back to this again without question. A reminder that you can listen to an archive of today's show on the voiceamerica.com business channel, on Wagner and Winnick. As we remind you each week during our program, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer.
finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. 